0: The morning has already been so full, I was sitting here on the front pew thinking about how many reminders of new life we've already had today. Heather's testimony and um, a platform full of children being dedicated to God brought to my mind again the great blessing that we have been entrusted with here at College Church with so many young families. I don't know how much you get around the hallways and the rooms on a Sunday morning here, but we have young families everywhere, and it is an enormous blessing for us as a church and so as I saw these children dedicated and I heard their parents give testimony uh, of their desire to raise their children in the knowledge and love of God, I couldn't help but think of my own kids. They're not really so small anymore. Silas is back here playing the mandolin. He's my oldest and he turned 17 two weeks ago, which pretty much means I've had two weeks to try to come to grips with the fact that I am now old enough to have a 17-year-old child. But Silas entered the scene of my married life to Jim really early on. He was a bit of a surprise. And so there was a period of shock and awe in our home when we discovered that he was on the way. And once we got through that season, we were met with friends and family who were so wonderful about coming alongside of us and encouraging us about the parenting journey. Uh, They told us how we would be able to grow in our capacity to love and how we would know joy like we'd never known before once he arrived. They backed up their words with actions. They came alongside of us and they threw baby showers for us where they lavished us with gifts and they gave us um, advice and encouragement as parents. We had grandparents who were living 1,200 miles away at the time calling regularly and telling us how excited they were about their growing tribe. And so somewhere in all of this positivity, this hubbub, I just sort of started to assume that this was a foreshadowing of the parenting life to come. I floated through those last weeks of my pregnancy on the bubbles of hope and optimism that were brought my way by people telling us that with Silas's arrival, we would feel complete. And I don't really remember much about Silas's actual physical arrival on the scene, thanks to some good medicine and modern science. But I do remember a doctor walking into the hospital room hours after delivery and saying everything looked good, and he had ordered the discharge papers. They would be available soon, and we should go ahead and prepare ourselves to head home. And so as we packed up that hospital room, we were so excited because here it was. This parenting journey was really officially beginning, and all of these good things were about to start happening. And then fast forward about two hours later, We were sitting on the sofa in our living room staring at a freshly fed, freshly changed infant who clearly had not caught the bubbles of hope and optimism. Or if he had, they were stuck in his digestive system because he was screaming uncontrollably, red-faced, all shriveled up, fist clenched. And Jim and I went back and forth looking at one another and looking at this child thinking, we have no clue what we're doing. Nobody really mentioned this side of things. In all those months of people talking about what was to come, yes, we were naive and young, and yes, we knew babies cried, but everybody had been talking about all of the positive things, and very few mentioned what being a parent would require of us and cost us even. And it's not like we were asking, right, because we were perfectly content thinking about everything we would gain from this journey. And so really it's been over the course of 17 years now that we have progressively come to an understanding and frankly are still coming to an understanding of what it means to be parents. Now, I've thought a lot about this because of Silas's birthday, but I've also been thinking a lot about this in light of this sermon series that we've been in because as I've considered the idea of living the possessed life, I found myself clinging to this thought of the Spirit empowering me to be more joyful and loving and hopeful. And I've spoken with many of you who have been incredibly encouraged, thinking about the Spirit empowering you and enabling you to do good works, fruitful, meaningful work that is lasting for the kingdom of God And we should be encouraged by this because this is what God has for us. And yet, in his love and mercy, God does not give us a partial or one-sided view of our understanding of the possessed life. He wants us to fully understand what we are getting into when we say, I want to be filled with the Spirit of God. And so in the latter part of John 15 and in the passages that Don just read from John 16, Jesus fills us in on some of the details. I like to think of it as the, the fine print of the possessed life. This is sort of a reality check, and it's the kind of information that's not always easy to comprehend or receive, but is essential for us to understand if we are, in fact, to truly live the fully possessed life. So what this means for today is that this message is not a particularly easy one. As I've spent the last few weeks poring over John chapters 14 through 16, I have to tell you that by these particular verses in the margin of my Bible, I simply wrote the words, gut check, because while these chapters describe for us many of the benefits of the possessed life, these particular verses also require us to see the larger picture of the possessed life, and they force us to ask ourselves some difficult questions so that we might fully understand what it means to receive God's Spirit. Now, if you've spent any time at all in the Gospels, you know that while Jesus sometimes is riddle-like in his speech, He also doesn't candy coat most things. And so he dives right in here to our understanding of the possessed life, telling us in John 16 that in order to gain the spirit, we must incur loss. Look at verse 7 there. Jesus tells his followers that in order to gain the advocate, that is the Holy Spirit, he has to leave them. Now consider the magnitude of this loss for these 12 who gave up everything to follow Jesus. They had done everything he had asked of them, everything that he had instructed them to do. And while they had seen some pretty spectacular things, Jesus hadn't been timid in letting them know that the work on earth was not yet complete. They knew firsthand that there were still many Jews and Gentiles alike who did not understand who Jesus claimed to be. And I would imagine that after having seen the mighty works Jesus had done while he was with them, turning water into wine, giving sight to the blind, healing the lame, even raising Lazarus from the dead, it would have been pretty difficult to imagine one who would come after him and do such things and even more. And yet that's exactly what Jesus told them would happen. In John 14, he said, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Because he was leaving them, because of what the disciples would lose, they would gain something greater than they could ever possibly conceive of in their own imaginations. All that sounds good, but I have to admit that I can still sort of relate to the disciples' inability to figure out how all this was gonna work. I think they probably ask themselves questions like the ones we continue to ask to this day. One being, why on earth did Jesus have to leave in order for the Spirit to come? Wouldn't a package deal have been preferable? And yet Jesus understood that in order for the Spirit to come, he needed to return to the Father to be glorified and that in so doing, the Spirit could not only exist as it had from the very beginning but could fully enter the hearts and lives of those who proclaimed Jesus to be the Christ. Jesus said, it is good that I am going away. It is good for you to lose because there is something so much greater to be gained. Now think about that. Jesus was essentially telling these 12, I have walked beside you for the past three years. I have been with you. And together we have done some pretty remarkable things. And yet in leaving you and in sending my spirit, I will now be in you, as Daniel said earlier. I will be in you, part of you, empowering you to do the work of the Father. The, the things that I, Jesus, have been doing will now be accomplished in you by my spirit. And when I leave this world and send the spirit, this work will no longer be confined to my physical body, rather it will travel into every crevice and corner of the world where those who have proclaimed me as Lord and been filled with my spirit will go. But Jesus is clear, in order for this type of good work to occur, something first has to be lost or let go. And that's not really a new message for Jesus, is it? He told these disciples from the very beginning, whoever loses their life for him and for the gospel will save it. And anyone wanting to be first should be last. In other words, lose yourself because there is something greater to be gained. And so in our desire to live the possessed life, it should come as no surprise to us really that the first question Jesus has us ask of ourselves What are we willing to lay down in order to receive the gift of the Spirit? As I've considered that question this week, I have to tell you that the possessed life was a lot easier to imagine and desire when it was something I could just add to my existing life, right? But what are the things that we are just afraid of or we can't imagine laying down or letting go of in order to receive the Spirit Those things that might not even seem in contention with the work that the Spirit would want to do in and through us. So if it's all the same, we just like to have both at the same time. Certain relationships or possessions, habits or behaviors. It's a huge question to wrestle with. And yet Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues on giving us a second reality check about the possessed life telling us that living this life involves hard work, and it will require us to remain faithful and present in a world that does not value us nor the work that we have been sent to do. I think when I have imagined the work of the Spirit being done in and through me, I've thought a lot about mighty and mystical things. So miracles and wonders, if you will, things that I couldn't possibly accomplish in and of myself in my human state. And yet in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 16, Jesus gives us a bit of a different perspective on the work of the Spirit. He says that when he comes, the Spirit will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. I read that a whole lot of times this past week, and I have to tell you, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. I had more in mind healings and miracles and robust teachings coming from my mouth that couldn't possibly have come from my brain alone. And the Spirit is certainly capable of all of those things, but it's not the work that Jesus describes here in John 16. Instead, he says that the Spirit will show the world that its refusal to believe that he is who he claims he is is at the root of all sin, So in other words, Jesus will use the spirit-filled believer like a magnifying glass or a flashlight, illuminating sin and consistently directing people back to the truth that Jesus is Lord. You can imagine how wildly popular that's going to be in certain circles, right? Think about your own lives. Where are the places it's just a little easier to check your identity as a Christian at the door for fear of rejection? Where is it difficult to live out your faith fully? At work or at school? Maybe even at home or in the marketplace? Online? For most of us, I really hope that those places are fewer rather than greater. But Jesus is telling us that if we truly desire to live the Spirit-filled life, will probably feel like square pegs in a round hole with some frequency. He actually said it a little bit more bluntly at the end of John 15. He told his followers that the world would hate them, just as it hated himself and the Father for no reason. I can think of few things that are worse in this life than being hated for no reason. He might not know the person, You've never really had any significant interaction with them, and yet for whatever reason, they detest you. They speak badly of you to others, and they make your life painful or difficult in many ways. Folks, this is the reality of the possessed life that Jesus paints for us here. He is giving us the nitty-gritty details of the hard road that we will have to walk if we desire this life. And essentially, he's telling us He's giving us advance notice even, that if we are filled with the Spirit, our lives and our messages, our very essence, will likely not fit in very well to this world or the people that surround us in it. He's saying there's a high probability that you're going to stand out, and probably not for the glamorous reasons you had imagined being the case in being Spirit-filled I was thinking about this this week, and um, very elementary thought came to my head. It was like, Emily, you need to realize that in living the spirit-filled life, the world will receive you a whole lot less like the ice cream man and a whole lot more like the dentist. And so for many of us, the tendency with that reality is to withdraw, to seclude ourselves amongst others who are like us, those who are also filled with the spirit, and sort of just hunker down and await for Jesus' return. The problem with that, of course, is what good is the Spirit's witness if it is contained to those who already know the truth that Jesus is Lord? What good is the light of Christ if it can't already permeate a room that is already lit? The truth is that the life that is truly possessed by the Holy Spirit is one that remains present in the world, no matter how out of place it might feel, so that the work of the Spirit can be accomplished. So the next question I think Jesus encourages us to ask ourselves is, what am I afraid of? What work that the Spirit might ask me to do frightens me or makes me feel less certain that I really want to live this life? Do I really want to live in that neighborhood do I really want to be asked to speak up at that event or take that job or reach out to those people I told you it's not easy there's a lot to consider and Jesus actually goes on and gives us another thing another reality of the possessed life to consider and that is that surrender is required Now, you might be thinking, Emily, already said that. Back up. You told us that we had to lose something in order to gain it, but hear me out because I think there's a distinct difference between sacrifice and surrender. Sacrifice is giving something up for the sake of someone or something else. So a soldier loses her life for the sake of her country and its values. That is sacrifice. A teacher sacrifices countless hours in the classroom after school, tutoring underprivileged students or underperforming students for the sake of their future and their education. Parents sacrifice all sorts of things so that their children might have the best lives possible. So sacrifice is loss, but with the promise of something in return. It, It might not be for yourself, but for someone or something somewhere down the line. Surrender, however, is an action that requires us to willfully yield a right, a privilege, or a possession. It is submission and release. And in surrendering something, we essentially recognize that we might never get it back. The situation might never go the way we think it should. And so in surrender, we completely relinquish control to someone or something beyond ourselves. Jesus tells us in this text that there is a role for surrender in the possessed life. He tells us that once we have sacrificed and given up that which prohibits the Spirit from fully entering our hearts, and once we have postured ourselves to remain in the world where the Spirit can bear witness to the Lordship of Christ through us, we then must yield our witness to the Spirit's prompting. Look with me beginning at verse 13. He says, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The spirit will guide us. We simply have to surrender ourselves to its leading, which of course isn't simple at all. Because surrendering myself to the prompting of the spirit means that I might be compelled to act differently than my personality or my persuasion would typically lead me, right? This is a gross overgeneral categorization, so I just say that as a disclaimer right now. But as I thought about this, I sort of divided us into two categories as people. There are bear pokers and wallflowers. All right, so let me explain. Because when we find ourselves in these square peg and around hole situations, I think some of us kind of gear up. You know who you are. You're the types that don't mind standing out and taking pride and asserting yourselves for what you believe in and you do it in a forthright kind of way. You're not afraid to poke the bear, if you will, and so you allow the light of your witness in this world to be shown like, like a lightsaber, swishing and swooshing it valiantly through the world in combat-like fashion. More often than not, you bear-pokers default to the use of strong words or extreme actions to defend your position and your point of view. You can get loud and argumentative, And at times, you use extreme language to sort of offset yourself from the crowd. You kind of verbally throw your witness at people, hoping that by using such force, it will inevitably be caught. And this doesn't always present itself in the most attractive of ways, as you can imagine. Accusations and finger-pointing, Facebook rants or sharp and snarky tweets. There are any number of ways that you bear pokers boldly proclaim your witness, believing that by so doing, you are fulfilling the mandate of the possessed life, proving the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, if that's not you, take a deep breath, because on the other side of the spectrum, there's another group of people. These folks who I can relate to tend to sort of fly under the radar in these situations. We're the types who have convinced ourselves that our greatest witness comes from quietly staying off the grid, just kind of minding our own business, not drawing attention to ourselves, and quietly praying for the evil in this world around us. We just sort of assume that if we refuse to be too engaged with the world, that will be our greatest witness. We might be described more as wallflowers. We have a beauty. A light, but I think it would probably be described more as a pen light. Useful in certain situations, but overall subtle, unobtrusive, and maybe even insignificant. More often than not, you wallflowers default to not feeling the need to explain or defend your point of view. You withdraw from situations where your input might stand out or create a scene. You assume your witness will be caught and noticed by those who want to receive it, and you wouldn't want to create trouble for anyone, yourself included, who might not yet be ready to receive it. And so, of course, this also doesn't always present itself in the most attractive ways, because the wallflower's quietness is not typically rooted in great self-control or restraint, but rather in fear or narcissism. A hyperactive self-conscientiousness that tells us it's better to remain silent and unnoticed than to rock the boat and stick out. And somehow, we wallflowers believe that in our subduedness, we are nobly witnessing to the world through our peaceful, inconspicuous lives. Now rest assured that neither the bear poker nor the wallflower is completely in the wrong. Both are justified in many ways in their actions and their beliefs. But you see, Jesus said that when the Spirit fills us, we will be told what to say. And more often than not, I wonder if the bear poker isn't being told to stop or to wait or to listen. And if the wallflower isn't being told to speak, to move, or to hasten, But we allow our personalities and our preferences and our comforts to get in the way to keep us from surrendering to the Spirit, therefore hampering its witness to the world through us. The Spirit, Jesus says, will speak through us, our message, if we will simply get out of the way and allow the Spirit to do its intended work through us. The Spirit will, as Pastor Steve said a couple of weeks ago, work harmoniously with our distinct quirks and qualities and our personalities to convey its message. But first, we have to surrender those things to the one who has been sent to fill us. And so the third question Jesus tells us to ask ourselves in considering the Spirit-possessed life Is are you really listening for and willing to act upon the prompting of the Spirit? Even if it requires you to alter your innate response to a person or a particular situation, even if you're told to tone it down or to amp it up, are you willing to surrender to its prompting? These are three very difficult questions. What are you willing to lose so that you might gain the Spirit? Are you willing to remain faithful and present in the world so that the Spirit's work may be done in places that are fairly dark? And are you really listening to what the Spirit asks you to do? Or are you just sort of plowing through life, assuming that you know the way to go, and so not really making time to listen for that still small voice? I'll tell you that sitting at my desk a number of times this week, I pushed back and thought, I don't know. Is this really what I want? Because it sure requires a lot of us. And since I kind of feel like I'm not really holding back any punches this morning, I should tell you that as we heard in the reading before, Jesus goes on and he tells us that there's actually more to consider in the spirit-filled life, but we don't know the half of it just yet. We're not ready for it but jesus will give it to us when the time is right when we are ready to bear the weight of such realities heavens if somebody had told me about the junior high years when i was becoming considering becoming a parent i would have run very far away right because i needed to live through the sleepless nights of an infant and the bumps and bruises of a toddler the entire elementary school homework experience and travel team sports in order to be prepared for the prepubescent, emotionally unstable seventh grader. It was necessary. And yet, in spite of the things that Jesus says we don't yet know about the possessed life, I hope that we will be comforted and encouraged by the fact that Jesus, after telling us everything the possessed life will cost us, he also reminds us of another very important reality That in yielding to the spirit, in in losing something so that we can gain it, and in remaining present in the dark places of this world so that it might bear witness to the lordship of Christ through us, in surrendering our tendencies to his prompting, we are not alone. We're not alone. In fact, by submitting ourselves to the possessed life, we are taken into the greatest community that has ever been the community of the triune god father son and spirit look again at verses 13 and 14 jesus says the spirit will not speak on his own he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come and then he goes on saying that the spirit will glorify me because it is from me that the spirit will receive what it will make known to you this is remarkable folks look at that carefully You are submitting yourself to the will and prompting of the Spirit who submits itself to the will of the Son, whose purpose is to glorify the Father, whose greatest desire is to be reconciled to each of us. So while the investment on our part is great loss and hard work and submission, The possessed life is one that is marked by confidence and comfort, knowing that we are submitting ourselves to the community of the Godhead, which models for us this kind of submission for each other's benefit. The possessed life is not a solo venture. It's not something that we do on our own. Rather, it is the life that we are empowered and equipped to live because of the community of the Trinity with each member submitting to one another, and in so doing, accomplishing the greater work of the kingdom, that in this submission, our witness to the world will be made perfect, just as it is meant to be. And so this week, in preparing for this, I found it incredibly right and fitting that we would be looking at this text and the full picture of the possessed life on of all days, Ascension Sunday. Daniel did such a great job of explaining to us what this day is, but in summation, it's the day when the church worldwide celebrates Jesus after his resurrection, leaving this earth and returning to the heavenly realm where he claimed his enthronement as king. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 3 that at this time, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God and that he received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. All this so that we, we sitting here at College Wesleyan Church in 2016, might receive all that the Spirit would lavish upon us and be witnesses of God in every corner of the earth. In our desire to live the Holy Spirit-filled life, I want to encourage you this morning to consider the complete picture that Christ has given to us of what it means to be truly possessed by his spirit Take it seriously, folks, because I think it's all too easy to claim that this is what we desire and not recognize what it might cost us. But clearly, Jesus wants us to understand, yes, the benefits, but also the cost.